Back to the Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9 podcast. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty well. Uh, ready to talk about the, uh, the Maquis and whatever happened on Babylon 5. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it sounds like, uh, sounds like you didn't improve your opinion of Voice in the Wilderness like I did during Part 2. Eh, not quite. No, not quite. All right. So, yeah, we're talking uh, part two of Voice in the Wilderness, which is uh, episode 17 of the first season of Babylon 5. It premiered on the 3rd of August, 1994. And then we're talking about the two-parter Maquis, which was uh, episodes 20 and 21 of season two of Deep Space Nine. And they aired on the 24th of April and the 1st of May, 1994. And the A-plot of Voice in the Wilderness, uh, part two. The massive ship coming through the jump gate at the end, the cliffhanger, it turned out to be Earth Force heavy cruiser Hyperion, sparking a dispute between Sinclair and Captain Ellis Pierce over who has jurisdiction over the crisis. The basic A plot, Captain Ellis Pierce just jumps right on Sinclair from the get-go. and like, like, I'm just taking over. This seems to happen a lot on Babylon 5, uh, where people just come in and like, are like, okay, I'm in charge now. I'm handling the situation. Is that like a common theme among Babylon 5 as you continue through the season? Uh, I mean, it is pretty standard that you'll have the scenario, especially in season one, of like somebody in authority comes in onto the station and gives um, Sinclair problems. Like we saw that with the labor negotiators in tow uh, from by any means necessary. And, you know, that, I think there's some other examples I think Pierce is a little different, though, in that he's, like, asserting military command over Sinclair, which is interesting, since, like, he t the Earth Force, like, ranking system is complicated, but as I understand it, and as the Babylon Project wiki explains it, Pierce actually does outrank Sinclair, but Sinclair is making a kind of legalistic but ultimately successful argument that, no, the president gave him authority over the sector and so he's arguing that pierce can't just override that authority so it's i mean we, we've kind of come to see that be sinclair's kind of standard move is he makes a kind of clever legalistic case to circumvent the obstacle yeah i mean with the with the way the ranking system works sinclair will be commander and then you've got captain so that's not the, that's the same way in star trek though correct yeah, yeah, but then it's weird because above captain you have uh, lieutenant colonel and colonel, and you'll you'll see uh, Earth Force officers with those ranks later, and then you have admiral and general ranks above colonel. So it's it's weird that you have a combination of arm what you know what we think of in the U.S. as army and navy ranks in the Babylon uh, Five system. So that's a little odd, not really what you would expect, and also it just makes for a really um, broad rank system I'm, I'm i think you have a, about a dozen officer ranks which is a lot i think in star trek but maybe you only have like eight but in the babylon 5 military there's at least a dozen it takes you a long time to climb up the ranks it is a little strange that the commander of a ship outranks the commander of a station i mean you sort of see that in both ds9 and babylon 5 where both uh cisco and sinclair and sheridan i think all start out with the rank of commander which in reality they have authority over far more people 
than a ship's captain is likely to have authority over. And later, once Sheridan takes command, he explicitly compares his job to being akin to the role of a military governor more than it is just a military commander. And so in that sense, it is kind of funny that um, uh, Pierce or the actor Ron Canada kind of outranks Sinclair in this episode. Going back to what you said about Commander Sisko being over DS9, I don't know, like DS9, the number of people on that on the station compared to Babylon 5, and then the number of people that would be on like a, a Galaxy-class starship, like, you know, the Enterprise, I mean, are they comparable? I don't really remember. I know, I know it was a low number as far as didn't, like how many people you'd be over. Didn't we have... It, I, granted, I'd have to go back to our previous outlines and check, but is, isn't it like there's a few hundred crew on DS9? But right. A, was it a max capacity of, of 5,000 people, or was it a normal capacity of 5,000 people? It was really small, I know that much, compared to what compared to Babylon well, it, 5. Well, granted, it's a lot less than Babylon 5, but I think I think the Enterprise-D only has about 1,000 people. That's like crew and family and staff, you know, like like civilian workers, too. I think, okay. I think I'd have to check, but I think it's only 1,000. We're going so, to we're gonna have to look that up, because I need to know how many crew, like, your Captain Picard was over on the Enterprise, and how many crew... Manchester's so, actually over. Picard would, as I as I guess slash vaguely remember, I think Picard would have authority over more crew and more officers, but Cisco would deal with a lot more people passing through the station. Right. Like I, I would expect that usually there would be more people on DS Nine even before, maybe even before the wormhole, than you would have on the Enterprise D. So, yeah, in that sense, it's. I you know like because usually in the original uh, series I think when you saw Starbase you'd you'd have somebody be like a commodore or an admiral who was in charge of it it would be like a flag officer's rank or flag officer's position excuse me so going back to rank like with Star Trek I know you've got the pips you've got the the things around their wrists I don't know what they call it's all mad but like is there anything in Babylon Five to identify them as whatever rank they are because I haven't looked close enough. I have made a point to try and not know that, but um, <laughs> I, as I really don't want to get that deep into the nerddom with it, but I think it has to do with their shoulder insignia. Okay. It's a lot less obvious and a lot less visually easy to spot than the pips are in Star Trek, although it's, it's probably also more realistic, militarily speaking. Start looking at their shoulders. Okay. I was just curious, because I hadn't even noticed, until you mentioned ranking this, I was like, wait a minute, oh yeah, they... I guess because the uniforms are kind of blah you know, in, in general. They're not you know, colorful like Star Trek. So. Yeah, there's also, there are like, I think, different colors at some points on the uniform to denote departments, but it's a lot more subtle than like the big colorful jumpsuits you see in Star Trek. Go, let's go back to the B-plot of uh, Voice in the Wilderness Part 2. Garibaldi follows Delin, Drow, Malari, and Varn down to the surface of Epsilon 3 to make a radical change in the Great Machine. This Great Machine is on Planet Epsilon 3, and it uses that alien, the Varn, or whatever, as a... Or not the alien, the Varn. Varn as a... Uh, not a battery, but something to help protect the planet. To have some, like I guess, essence or consciousness in the machine. This planet is just... Without without the, the mind in there, you've got to... It just goes crazy and starts shooting stuff all over the place in its defense system. Then it may blow up and destroy Babylon 5. That's going to be a problem. Um, what's funny about this, though, is 
that they well, give. In fairness, I don't know that it's the machine is going crazy. I think it's just it's just defensive of its power, right? Like it's not going to let um, Varn's people or you know the Hyperion or maybe even Babylon Five people interfere with it. I think it's. I was scared. I, yeah, I don't. I, well, I, just, I don't even know if it's scared. I just think it has very good security protocols because it's a very like powerful thing you know it's a very convenient deus ex machina for the show yeah it shoots death star lasers everything that's what i noticed well and to be clear like (laughs) it would it it, it's not going to death star laser babylon 5 that that the idea is that it's going to become unstable and blow up the planet and thus blow up babylon 5 yes correct that's what i said earlier Oh, well, you, you, it was going you start, crazy. I mean, a, a laser that up. can destroy a ship is not a Death Star laser. I it's mean, a, a damn Death, Death Star, Star laser. laser. It no, shoots... a Death, Death Star laser blows up a planet. I mean, granted, they did retool it in Return of the Jedi to blow up specific capital ships. But, yeah, Hyperion's but, a capital ship, isn't it not? Yeah, but like a, <laughs> a laser that's powerful enough to blow up capital ship is not necessarily powerful enough to blow up a planet and to qualify as a death star laser it needs to be able to blow up a planet which we don't know if it can do yeah so i'm gonna call it a death star laser because it's a big ball that shoots a laser that's blowing up damn ships it blew up that other alien ship the other the varn ship like tore it to pieces like it was nothing it was paper bam yeah, but that doesn't mean it can blow up a world. I mean, maybe it can, but we I don't think we know that from this episode. I bet it can. I bet it can. So, okay, my other thing, too, is, okay, now we've got this thing. Is it going to protect Babylon 5? Is it, like, their new, like, defense system? Like, they've got this planet right, right here that just, like, shoots lasers for them? Is that something that's going to Well, sort of, but there's also the sort of thing of, like, oh, like, we have... You have to be, like, mature enough or ready for us, and, you know, there's no... There's no guarantee that that's going to happen anytime soon. And there's also the sense that it's only going to maybe be, I think I can say this without giving any spoilers. There's the sense that it's only going to intervene at maybe a certain very important point. It's not just going to be like, oh no, the Centauri or the Narn are angry at Babylon 5. And so, oh, they can rely on the great machine as a deus ex machina. Okay, is that why they put a Minbari in there? Um, In the machine? I think it's a Mimbari just because the Mimbari are like, you know, one of the oldest of the races and, are, you know, are generally portrayed as being, quote, more mature and more enlightened. And I don't I don't think there's a specific, like, you know, like interstellar politics angle to why it's Mimbari necessarily. It, it also seems it also seems like the it, the machine doesn't really play favorites like right just because Varn um you know, is the host before uh, Drawl, it doesn't really make the Great Machine, you know, more partial to Varn's people, as it were. You've got Sinclair appointed to Babylon 5 by the Membari. Now you've got Drawl, the Membari, on Epsilon 3. There's something there. Yeah, yeah, no, there, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, don't assume that the Membari are more cohesive than they actually are, I guess would be what I would say. All right, so there's a C-plot to this as well. Garibaldi finally gets a hold of his old flame. Is it Lice or Lisa? Lease. Lease on Mars and receives a mix of good and bad news. Uh, the good news is that she's alive. The bad news is that she's married and, and, and knocked up. So 
Yeah, so it goes. So it goes. Not the last time we'll see Lise, though. Uh, I'll just say that. Did you catch the bar fight? We have once again. We have another bar fight. Uh, you know, last time it was Ivanova, now it's Garibaldi. Yeah, I like the I like the comics reference you pulled out of this because somebody online was saying that it was a reference to Captain Marvel with him saying Shazam, which I, I thought that was kind of forced because I, I I feel like Shazam is a fairly generic magic word that isn't necessarily supposed to evoke the big red cheese. But you made the point that it was pretty similar to Heath Ledger's Joker's magic trick in uh, The Dark Knight. Yeah, he's like, you want to see a magic trick and like slams the guy's head down on the bar. Like, all I needed was a pencil. Good to go. uh, you know, it was, I don't know, they were both pretty cheesy, but I think I thought the Ivanova fight scene was funner and a little more interesting than this one. Yeah, I appreciate the Ivanova scene more so than this. It just seemed like Garibaldi just needed to go somewhere else, so you didn't have to hear them. Yeah, yeah. It, it was interesting in that it does highlight that there's, you know, almost a racial animus between uh, Earthers and Marsies, which is interesting. And it's not a major theme of the show necessarily, but that sort of division between Earth and Mars is something that the show does keep coming back to, even like in the spinoffs to a certain extent. So that's sort of interesting. You think uh, Garibaldi's going to be hitting the drink pretty hard now that uh, he lost his girl? Um, I mean, I think that's always like, you know, a factor of suspense with his character. Like, you know, will this thing uh, knock him off the wagon? Although I will say that I think at this point in the show, Babylon 5 is episodic enough that if Lise was going to knock him off the the wagon or to be fair, if, you know, like him finding out this thing about Lise because, you know, it's not her fault. She got on with her life. But if, you know, Lise getting uh, married and having a kid was going to knock him off the wagon, you'd probably see it in this episode. Because I think at this point in season one, Babylon 5 is still pretty episodic. It's not as serialized as it gets later. One other thing I want to point out at the, uh, the end, Glenn says that she didn't tell Sinclair about the machine because she thought Sinclair would go, would want to volunteer to, to plug himself into it. Uh, because he thinks he has this, like, complex you know where he, he has to be the hero or something but she apparently knows that like this is not what he's meant to be or what he needs to do is this this keeps alluding to stuff yeah yeah this is why i really like talking about this with you because the way you're sort of reading the minbari it is very different from how i understand the minbari like at the end of the show which is granted like they it, I, I like i think you're you're making like reasonable inferences but it, it ultimately it's just not the way the show wound up going because it seems to me that you almost feel like the minbari are akin to the vorlons at this point with like having like secret knowledge and a secret agenda and that, while that's like there's there's important ways in which that's true there's also important ways in which like the Minbari aren't very much like the Vorlons for a couple of interesting reasons we'll eventually get to. And so I would just say that I, I think you're really astute to point this out and to point, you know, it, it also ties into things that we've seen from Sinclair before. Like, you know, you, you had a lot of problems with his sort of recklessness and you noted that uh, Garibaldi calls him out in prior episodes. You know, he almost seems to kind of have a death wish. Right. And so, yeah. So that sort of like sense of like grand self-sacrifice, I think Delenn sees in Sinclair. Um, and she, you know, she knows that that would be the perfect thing. He, you know, it would make him put himself into the machine if he had the opportunity. And so she sort of circumvents that. 
And I, I think the way I take it is it's not so much that Delenn knows what Sinclair's destiny is. It's just she knows that he has one and she's trying to shape it. Like she understands something about his character and thinks that he should do something else other than, you know, guide the great machine, as it were. So I forgot to, I forgot to give my friends a title for this episode. It's oh, God. The one with ambassadorial hijinks. It's all the ambassadors getting a shell together and take the Vorn down to the planet. It's just... <laughs> well, with that, should we uh, transition to uh, your friend's title for the Maquis? Yeah, it's the one that introduces the Maquis. Simple enough. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have to be fun. <laughs> all right, so in the A-plot, we have uh, Cisco investigating the destruction of the Cardassian ore freighter Bachnor. And in this investigation, he tries to liaise with both his old friend Cal Hudson, who's the Starfleet contact, to the former Federation colonists who now live in Cardassian space, as well as uh, Cisco tries to liaise with Ducat, who has gone rogue from the Cardassian Central Command. Eventually, a new terrorist group, the Maquis, made up of these former Federation colonists, or at least some of them, uh, claim responsibility for the freighter's destruction, and they kidnap Ducat. A plot was great in this episode. I yeah, thought, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I honestly didn't remember this uh, episode very fondly. I'm not really sure why. Like, it's a pretty good two-parter, but just the last time I watched through, I just remember not thinking very much of this episode. But no, I like it. I like it. I liked it this time. I kind of found it annoying though that we never see Hudson again. I don't even know if he appears in books. I was, I, I think, I thought he could have been like something much further down the line since Cisco let him go. Well, it's sort of interesting how much we don't even really see him in the two-parter. Like, at first, it seems like he'll be the major focus, but then it kind of turns, you know, it's almost sort of teased as, like, a Cisco and Hudson, like, buddy cop story. Although I think, you know, from pretty early on, you get signals that, like, Hudson's loyalty to Starfleet has been compromised by his admiration for the colonists. But as the as it goes, yeah, Hudson really just kind of drops out. He does come back at the end of uh, the second part, but he's just not in the two parter that much. And the show turned or the episodes turned much more into being about Cisco and Ducat than Cisco and Hudson. And the uh, the actor in this episode, Bernie Casey. Bernie Casey. Uh, I don't really. I didn't recognize him from anything. You said you yeah. asked me about it. And I was like, ah, I don't really know what he's from. Yeah, he, he has a small but kind of cool role next year on Babylon 5, if I'm remembering right. Okay. And then, oh, I, I, that does remind me of one thing. So did you recognize Ron Canada, who was playing uh, Captain Pierce on Babylon 5 at all? I I didn't at first, but you know, I went to the uh, IMBD, and uh, he actually does, He plays, I know he plays a Klingon later on in DS9. Yeah, he may show up in Voyager as like a one-off role too. The thing I recognized him from, although I didn't make the connection immediately, I just thought, oh, I know that guy, um, is he's the police chief in a few episodes of the rogue cop show, The Shield. So that's the thing I know him the most from. Well, so in the B-plot, we've got a Vulcan member of the Maquis, Sakona, and she's approaching court to broker uh, arms for the Maquis. 
And then in the C plot, this is, we're back on the Maquis two-parter, if that's not clear. And then in the C plot, we have flag officers from both Cardassia and the Federation, Legate Parn and Admiral Elena Nietzschev. And they're showing up on the station. They're both perturbed by the rising violence in the demilitarized zone. And uh, Nietzscheev, like many in Starfleet, doesn't trust Odo. Yeah, I, I felt like uh, these episodes point out just how like naive the Federation is when they kind of they swoop in and they try to save the day or whatever issues going on with a planet at a particular time. But then they, they think they've solved all the problems and they leave, or they just leave behind, you know, skeleton crew kind of thing. And uh, we never return to what's going on, and they think that the Cardassians aren't going to, like, in this case, the Cardassians aren't going to take advantage of, of the situation. I, I thought it was funny. And they've also, they pointed this out on Lower Deck. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it is a kind of nice, like, expansion or poking at the traditional Star Trek formula of, like, you know, Captain Kirk or Captain Picard shows up, solves the world's problems in 45 minutes, and the Enterprise keeps moving. Um, I will say though, I don't, I don't want to like let the Maquis off the hook too easily. Like, I, I think their position is rather absurd. It's a big galaxy. Granted, like there's not that many uninhabited M-class planets. I guess we can assume, I think we can assume that, that, yeah, that's a finite resource, but still like the, fa the fact that they think they're like petty anti-agricultural uh, colonies on a disputed border are worth, you know, fostering further war between the Federation and the Cardassians, I think is like deeply uh, selfish and deeply reactionary. And I honestly, I, I think I had some sympathy for the Maquis when I first watched Deep Space Nine as a kid, because it was like, oh, they're like the Rebel Alliance. But eh, I, I just think they're like reactionary settler colonists. It's that kind of dynamic where like in the U.S. Uh, colonization effort, you'd oftentimes have the British government like trying to restrain U.S. settlers from being violent. Or they weren't U.S. settlers; they were just the British col British colonial settlers at the time. But you'd have like the British imperial government in London trying to restrain British American settlers from being violent towards the different native tribes, and that that seems to me to be the same dynamic with the Maquis and the Federation. It's that the Federation has a pretty reasonable concern about promoting peace with a rival power and the Maquis just can't accept that. And they, you know, even though they could resettle somewhere else, you know, they're living in a post-scarcity uh, utopia, but no, no, this piece of land is somehow worth a war. And I, I just think that's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't give the Maquis any really credit at this point because they're still kind of ragtag folks. Yeah, it is interesting. You made the point that we don't really see Bernie Casey as uh, Commander Hudson again. I, I think they do specifically reference him being killed later, like not to give spoilers for people who haven't watched all of DS9 yet, but, you know, some, something will happen that will eventually end the Maquis. But I, I think there is specifically a reference to him being killed at that point, and, like, Cisco's a little put off by it. But it, it is interesting that a lot of the themes... Um, that are set up about Cisco's uh, relationship with the Maquis, we already see here. Specifically, like the rhetoric about the uniform and what the Starfleet uniform means will come back a lot when Cisco is dealing with the Maquis in the future. So, even though the show doesn't follow up on uh, Bernie Casey as Cal Hudson specifically, it does. It this episode really does set the template for how the Maquis will appear in DS9 in interesting ways. And he phasered the uniform too. It's pretty cool. <laughs> very dramatic. Yeah, he had it very set dramatic. exactly to the exact right setting to just phase with the uniform. 
So did you recognize uh, Bertilla Damas, who was playing uh, the Vulcan Maquis, Sakona? No, I didn't recognize her. Yeah, I I thought she might be familiar, but I couldn't place her. Um, thought she did a good job, though. Apparently she shows up on Lodge 49, which is a surfer conspiracy show that a couple friends assure me is great. That sounds really weird. <laughs> like, surfer conspiracy show? You know, it's kind of like Thomas Pynchon esque, as the as the name sort of suggests. Let me go and back uh, to Hudson. Let me go back to Hudson real quick. Do you think that uh, Cisco should have blown up Hudson? I mean, probably, but I'm not gonna like get too angry at Cisco at this point. Do you I think mean, if this was a later season, he would have? I mean, it is interesting compared to how militant Cisco will be against the Maquis in the future. I mean, arguably so. Mil- Actually, I don't think arguably like so militant that he does cross some ethical lines. Although it, it, yeah, I guess I guess I would have to say Cisco's are a little inconsistent in in that way because he, for some people who are Maquis, he's pretty sympathetic, like his friend Cal or, you know, a certain future character who he starts dating, but then for other Maquis characters like a former employee of his who gets one who gets one over on him, he's not at all sympathetic. So it's sort of interesting the kind of inconsistencies of how Cisco uh, regards the Maquis. I think it would have been really cool if uh, Cisco would have blown him up, or if Ducat had like reached over and pushed a button to blow him up or something. Yeah, according to Memory Alpha, I think they originally wanted to kill uh, Hudson for the script, but they had just killed Lee Nollis at the end, and so some, one of the producers is like, "Well, we need to, you know, we need to save some of the guest stars for potential future work." But then I think when that producer saw the episode he said to the writer no you were right we should have just killed him off it would have dramatically worked better you'd mentioned something about that i thought found interesting was uh nor and cardassian space station you thought that's what it meant what did you find out yeah that's i mean that's what i assumed because we have terok nor which is ds9 and then much later in the show we'll go to impact nor which is another abandoned cardassian uh, space station but the freighter here being named uh the bach nor suggests that Nora doesn't refer to a space station, but it refers to mining or ore mining, since we, we do know that that's what the Terok Nor's you know, main function was when the Cardassians occupied Bajor. And I think we know that's what Impact Nor was mainly for as well. I think Memory Alpha still says that it's, uh, it's a, a class of space station, but I mean, either the Bach Nor is... Um, yeah, you, know, you could either regard it as an error and it's just a continuity aberration because fair enough, because I don't think we ever hear about other ships being named Nor. Or you could you could think that, OK, maybe Nor has a sort of double meaning or sort of, you know, meaning that could be appropriate to call both space stations and freighters. But I, I, I think the assumption that it, it refers to mining actually makes more sense, although it is interesting. I think we know a lot less about the Cardassian language than we know about Klingon or Vulcan or even Bajoran. Yeah, I think Nor has some relation to mining ore or industry. I'm going to think it has something to do with ore, O-R-E. Well, then I was going to ask you, do you have any thoughts on uh, Admiral Nechev? Not really, no. I didn't think too much of. She she always seemed to be pretty important to me because I read a lot of the novels when I was a kid, and she shows up pretty frequently in those. Um, she shows up a lot in the New Frontier novels. And she normally has a role as, like, she's, like, uh, you know, the head of Starfleet Intelligence or a senior member of Starfleet Intelligence. So she's normally a little bit morally shady, right? Um, 
and apparently I haven't really read the post nemesis novels, but apparently in the post nemesis novels, there's a really interesting conspiracy between Necheyev and several of the other admirals we know from DS9 and Next Generation, including, I think, Owen Paris and William Ross. Picard gets involved in this conspiracy, and then the revelation of the conspiracy is one of the re- is is the reason that Picard is never going to get promoted past captain in the in the novel verse. Okay, yeah, I, did, I yeah. wasn't really, I, I didn't, I didn't read a lot of the novels when I was younger, like too many of them, so I don't really remember. Yeah, yeah, I, I was just thought she was pretty distinctive, partially because of the name and partially because of the blonde the blonde hair, like just the way it looks, looks pretty distinctive to me. And, you know, she, on next gen, she was always kind of busting Picard's balls, which I appreciate. Picard needs his balls busted. Picard needs his balls busted. That's a good way to segue into Thirst Watch. All right. <laughs> so in Thirst Watch, in Babylon 5, uh, Garibaldi says to Sinclair, Sinclair's asking Garibaldi of, telling Garibaldi that if, you know, they do have to evacuate the station, that is going to want to stay behind, but he doesn't want her to because she has a long career ahead of her. Garibaldi says, she'll be on it if I have to drug her and toss her in before the doors close. So I, I disagree with your interpretation here. I don't think this belongs in Thirst Watch. Uh, I, I think it does. I think it because Garibaldi, what drug would he use? I mean, you know, he's a security officer. Presumably he has access to some, you know, tranquilizers. But, like, for it to belong in Thirst Watch, you're, you're saying that, okay, it sounds like Garibaldi is going to date rape uh, Ivanova. That's what I'm implying, Which, I grant you, it does sound like that, and it is it does sound kind of creepy when you look at it from that direction. But nothing in what Garibaldi says suggests that he is necessarily going to be on the escape ship, too. Like, the idea... Like, he may well stay behind. The idea is just to get her off. So, Grant, I, I grant you it's a little skeezy, but I, I just don't know if it belongs I mean, to Thirst Watch. When I first, well, the first time I watched the episode, Bob, I heard this. I heard, she'll be on it if I have to drag her and toss her before the doors close. Okay? Drag is what I thought I heard. I'm like, I, I would fun. like it a lot better if it were drag. So then I go back, drag. and then I go back, and I turn the subtitles on, and it's, she'll be on it if I have to drug her and toss her before the doors close. That's... I, don't know if, I don't know if close reading uh, Garibaldi's dialogue is the healthiest thing mentally, Matt. I'm just, I'm just, just, I'm just going to throw that out there. I just want to point out, it seems very odd. It's an odd choice to say, if I have to drug her and toss her on. Like it, it, it's not ideal. Drag would be better. But there, there's no guarantee that, you know, if senior officers are staying behind, Garibaldi is very likely to stay behind. All right. Let's, <laughs> so let's move on to DS9, Thirst Watch. Hudson flat out asking Cisco if he's banging Dax. Did you catch on to that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't think that much about it. It is, uh, considering what later happens in the show in the Mirror Universe, it's, I, I like Cisco's response here a lot more than what happens later in the Mirror Universe. I'll just say that. And then you'd mentioned something about Kira and Dax. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought there was uh, some uh, really kind of fun um, and charming lesbian energy between Kira and Dax. Uh, Dax is going on a date with a, a Gallimite Captain Baudet, and, you know, apparently Gallimites have both transparent skulls and toothy grins, and uh, this really puts uh, Kira off. And uh, I th- she's also just seems to be very jealous that Dax is going uh, with Baudet instead of having dinner with her. And so I uh, really enjoyed that exchange and thought it was very fun. 
just girl talk, Bob. Just girl talk in the command center. Nah, nah. I think I think you're definitely supposed to see a bit more a bit more to it than that. It's granted it's not as overt as Garrick cruising Bashir, but there's it's a little bit funner than that, I think. Rick Berman, poorly written girl talk, that's what it is. I mean, in fairness, Rick Berman didn't write. He just produced. What else did we notice? Anything else on uh, uh Watch? we've got we've got some uh, of Quark trying to seduce Sakona, um, which was pretty entertaining and it is you know, it was still Quark coming on too strong, but it felt uh, more restrained than some of uh, Quark's seduction attempts in prior episodes. And the way the relationship between Quark and Sakona wound up with Quark having to translate the rules of acquisition into a logical argument uh, to win her over into cooperating was a pretty fun exchange, I thought. Definite thirst there. Definite thirst. Yeah, hey man, Vulcans are a species that can appreciate good ears. That's right, that's right. All right, so let's hit Econ Watch. Uh, I mean, we we already touched on a lot of this, but it just kind of, it does seem like there is probably an economic dimension to the Maquis, right? They're sort of agricultural settlers. They don't want to give up the work they've done on these planets that are in the demilitarized zone. And I mean, you know, fair enough. It's not great for them to have to surrender that, but it also just seems kind of ridiculous. Even, you know, even if we assume uninhabitable M-class planets are relatively rare in the galaxy or it does seem ridiculous for them to you know give up their citizenship and uh post-scarcity federation and you know remain on these worlds under the cardassian union's government and then get angry that they're they made a choice to remain under the cardassian union it just seems ridiculous to me all right so let's talk character of the week my character of the week is ducat because i was just happy to see him yeah, yeah, and this is where we finally start to see some development for Dukat beyond just kind of being the nemesis. I mean, he was a really well-played nemesis, but we get a lot more sense of Dukat playing political games in the Cardassian Union. We get a sense of, you know, him having a family. Um, him, We really get a sense of him wanting to be thought of uh, by Cisco as sort of a friendly rival or a sort of peer, not just as a, you know, not just as a uh, carbon cut out of a villain so yeah it was a really interesting episode for ducat i i think i would go with cisco though i actually really like cisco in this episode and i haven't always loved how they played cisco in the first season and a half and some of the some of like the choices and the stands they've made him take i, I haven't loved but uh here i thought you know it was just a really good uh portrait of cisco and this is why he's one of uh, my favorite starfleet commanders i agree with that so, episode of the week, I'm going for uh, Maquis. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would narrow it down to Maquis Part 2, though. Um, and I would just say, I, you know, we talked a lot um, in the prior episode about how Part 1s, especially in, like, the season cliffhanger mode, are usually really good, and then Part 2s are usually really disappointing. But I, I was kind of amused because it felt like with both of these two-parters, the second part was actually more interesting and actually kind of fleshed out the world a bit more than the first part. And maybe that's just the difference between having a two-parter within the season versus having a two-parter, you know, uh, close and open a season. 
But there was a lot of good stuff in both. I really did enjoy Malari flying like a madman down to Epsilon 3. And I did like some of the dialogue when Varn is reassuring Dolan that Draw was going to experience wonder in the Great Machine. I really liked that. I, 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 the, the overall scenario of The Great Machine I don't like, and I, it turns out to have not really been necessary for the show, which is annoying, but I actually <laughs> like that exchange because she, you know, she's worried about her friend, and you know, it specifically is like Dylan is has kind of subtly maneuvered this so like one friend will do this while another friend won't. Like, you know, she's kind of subtly maneuvered it where Drawl is going to go into the machine and Sinclair isn't. Yeah. And did you like the starship battles? It's not Babylon 5's best, but I think it's a good start. Like it's the first starship battle we've seen, right? Yes, it 5. is. And let me let me just point out that Babylon 5 starships are just not sexy. I mean, that's the best way to say it. Um, I think I will say that part of that is that Earth starships are not sexy. Like the 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 design of Earth ships are it's pretty atrocious. Yeah. But. Uh, and I think that's also, you know, kind of intentional. Like it says something about the, about like the sort of youngness of humans in the galaxy. It also maybe says something about their sort of militarism and their lack of aesthetic values. I think the, I, I'm not going to say like I, I'm in love with the designs. I, I much prefer Star Trek designs, but I do think like their Minbari and the Centauri ships that we see and the Vorlon ships that we see are a lot a lot more interesting and a lot more aesthetically satisfying than like the, the earth force heavy cruisers and destroyers. I agree. Or, are are not pretty ships. Yeah. They're very unattractive. I'm just like, okay, I want to see something hot get blown up. Yeah. And did it, did you notice anything about this battle in contrast to like your average star Trek starship battle? It was a bit slower paced to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to call it like realistic per se, because I mean, when you're in, when you're dealing with space opera, like realism is, uh, you know, a bit of a big ask, yeah. but like it, it, I think you're right to say it was slower paced. And, you know, you also have the role of fighters, which are usually not emphasized at all in Star Trek, if they're even present. And it, it feels much more like a sort of like strategy game where you have like, you know, you have like four very clear forces. You have like the two Earth Force, uh, in, you know, the station, the Earth Force station, and the Earth Force uh, cruiser. And then you have the alien species ships. And then you have the planet. And you've got a pretty good sense of like where they are in relation to each other, like what they're trying to do, how they're trying to prevent the others from doing stuff. So in that way, I thought it was maybe a little better realized in terms of like what the tactics of the battle are than your average Star Trek battle is. They're not moving very fast. Like they're just, they're in position. Like, well, the station of course is just stationary, but then like the ships themselves, they're just, they're basically parked with their, with their guns ready to go. Whereas in Star Trek, a lot of times you're seeing the movement of the ships as you're, as they're fighting. Yeah. And especially when we're dealing with the defiant, which is, you know, like very small and like specifically like kind of its maneuverability is played up a lot more than like the enterprise D's maneuverability. Right. Yeah. And in some ways that's kind of like the role that the fight, you know, the fighters are supposed to kind of take that like quick moving camera work or quick, quick moving computer camera work. 
away from the bigger ships. But yeah, it, Babylon 5 will do a lot better uh, Starship battles. They'll, they'll also do a lot worse. Like, not at, not all the Starship battles that are coming are, are that well thought out or that well realized. But, I don't know, it, it is sort of interesting in, like, drawing a distinction between how the two franchises approach the, this stuff. All right, so we'll wrap it up there with these two episodes. Let's talk about next week. We've got uh, Babylon 5, Season 1, Episode 18, Babylon Squared, and Deep Space Nine, Season 2, Episode 22, The Wire. Yeah, which is a sort of interesting coincidence because both of these are pretty important uh, episodes. So, all right. Yeah, it's kind of nice that they uh, they wound up paired off against one another. Well, I look forward to it. I look forward to Babylon yeah. Squared at least, maybe because I need some more like I need I need some better Babylon Five at this point, Bob. I've got to get some. Uh, you're we're almost there, Matt. Uh, <laughs> we're we're almost to season two, and you'll you'll have at least I forget which. Babylon 5 episodes we haven't covered in season 1 yet but Babylon squared and the finale are at least good. I'm not I'm not the others we haven't done are maybe not good but at least Babylon squared and the finale are are good. All right. Well, I look forward to those. Hopefully we'll uh I'll get a better understanding of why Babylon 5 is supposed to be considered one of the greatest sci-fi shows of all time. We're almost there. Whereas of right now right now I'm just like this is just this is not that not that great. It's not. It's not quite Star Trek. Or... Yeah, I mean, it's better than almost any uh, modern Star Trek season one, but it's not not a great season of television by any means. All right. Well, All right. So this has been uh, Babylon Five versus Deep Space Nine, the podcast. This has been Bob from Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line. Have a good day, everybody. Thanks for listening.